Welcome to this podcast from the Vessel Collective Church here in the heart of Texas. Our mission is to be vessels of the living Christ, set apart for His purpose and His kingdom. We thank you for sharing in this message here today. We've been in the series called The Gospel. Uh, it's been super simple, but really profound. It's just, what is the gospel? To, to preach it to ourselves, to, to talk about what we live for, what we believe is true about Jesus Christ. So I'm gonna pray, and then we're gonna jump in to, uh, to our message this morning. So thank y'all so much for being here. Lord, we love you, and already lift up uh, the gals that are getting away next weekend for the women's retreat. Just pray that they just are able to connect with you, connect with one another, and that you just move profoundly in their lives and in that community next weekend. I pray for the men. I th- thank you that uh, for the, all these wonderful dads that are here and, and, and uh, husbands that will come next weekend and really uh, continue to love you and worship you. Uh, we thank you for Easter, God. There's so many exciting things going on. We pray for our Muslim uh, neighbors. I uh, pray for uh, them is during this Ramadan that you just uh, move profoundly and make yourself known. And so we love you. We love you, Lord. We thank you for your promise and your presence in this time right now. As we open your word and we read about abundant life, God, I just ask, uh, would you speak to every one of us exactly what we need to hear in the right way, in the right moment? And so we just open our hearts to you and pray these things in your name. Amen. So we're going to be this morning in John chapter 9 and chapter 10. If you have your Bible, uh, you can flip to it. I'm going to read through there, obviously. If you have it on your phone, you can pull it up. And so we're going to kind of leapfrog through a little bit. But we've been, we've been talking about the gospel and what is it. And so we've talked about communion. We did a whole Sunday where we taught on communion and, and what communion means, about baptism. Um, TJ taught and talked about, like, practically, what does it look like to share your faith and, and to share the gospel with someone. Last week, I talked about... What was it? Oh, yeah, the nations. I talked about the nations and God's hearts for the nations. And so thank you, Jessica. And so it's really cool. And the heart of it is to see throughout Scripture how the gospel is like, it's what we do. It's what we live for. And from the beginning in Genesis chapter 1 to Revelation 22, like the gospel is this thread that runs throughout. And so um, in, the, in the spirit of coming up to Palm Sunday, is we're going to be in John. And it is kind of these last few days before Jesus comes into Jerusalem um, to be uh, crucified, to die, to be resurrected. And if you've ever read the book of John, the book of John is a bit of a leapfrog. It's kind of like a zoom in, zoom out in the life of someone and, and in the life of Christ. Is there are these moments that John highlights and talks about. And he even says in, in, in John that like, all the things that the Lord did, there wouldn't be, the books in the world couldn't hold the, the wonders of God. And so he talks about just these little moments and, and kind of midway through about John 9, 10, 11, things start to slow down. And, and these last days, as tensions rise between Jesus and these Pharisees, and um, as he, he, he goes in on Palm Sunday to, to Jerusalem, um, you know, things and tensions rise. And so that, that's what we're gonna be talking about a little bit about today. And so in John chapter nine, I'll set it up for you a little bit uh, and you should read on your own. It's really cool. It gives this beautiful picture of what it looks like to receive Christ. We're gonna talk about a little bit about that today. But in John chapter nine, the disciples and Jesus are going along the road. And if you know much about Jesus, like that was his ministry. His ministry was on the go as they went along the road, among the sinners. You know, it, it was not a... 
So the next Sunday, as they gathered at the YMCA for an hour and 15 minutes, it wasn't like that at all. It was as and so they're going along the road and there's this man that is blind. And then scripture says that he's a man that's been born blind. So he's been blind his entire life. And so they come along and, and the, the disciples famously or, or infamously asked Jesus, why is this man blind? Is it the sins of his father or his own sins that he was born blind? And it's, and Jesus tells them, he's like, he is not blind because of sin. He is blind so the glory and the goodness of God can be shown in his life. And so Jesus does this really disgusting miracle where he spits into the dirt, he makes mud, he takes mud and he rubs it on this man's eyes. He covers his eyes with mud. He says, now you're gonna go to the pool of Siloam. You're gonna wash your eyes. And when you wash your eyes, you're gonna be able to see, which is so weird, right? I mean, but, uh, you know, like you think about, like, why didn't he just heal him? And, and so he does this and, he, and this man goes and he washes his eyes out and he washes his eyes away and he can see. He's been blind his whole life. For the first moment he can see. I had a friend that uh, his, her grandfather had cataracts from a really early age, not born blind, but really early age, developed cataracts and went blind. And then later in life, they developed surgery to, to change that. And so as an old man, he had the surgery at the end of his life to change and he could see for the first time. And man, he laid, he, for his first time, he saw his granddaughter because he went blind before she was born and he just wept like to what it looks like to be able to see. And so this man, I just, this moment that he is given sight from the Lord. So he's healed and the Pharisees are there and the Pharisees, man, those old, you know, those old guys. So the Pharisees are all like, who did this to you? And they say, wait, is that the blind guy? Like, surely it can't be because he can see. It looks like, he goes, that's me. I can see. And like, what happened? Who did this to you? And he says, it was Jesus. Jesus healed me. And the Pharisees get all hot and bothered and upset. You mean he healed you on the Sabbath? Like they're all upset because the Jesus healed this man and gave him sight, but it was on the Sabbath. And they're like, you can't do this. This is no good. So they get all upset and they say, who do you say that he is? And his mom and dad are like, oh, I don't know. They know they're in hot water. This man says, he's, he's Jesus. He's the Messiah. He's the one. And so the Pharisees throw him out. And so in, at the end of John chapter nine, they throw him out and, and then Jesus finds him again. In verse 39 of chapter nine, it says, Jesus heard that they had thrown him out. And when he found him, he said, do you believe in the son of man? Who is he, sir? The man asked, tell me so that I may believe in him. And Jesus said, you have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. And Jesus said, for judgment, I come into this world so that the blind will see and so that, so that those who will see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, what, are we blind too? And Jesus said, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim that you can see, your guilt remains. And so Jesus just digs in with these Pharisees and puts them on the spot and this confrontation arises. And so at the beginning of chapter 10, Jesus says, very truly I tell you Pharisees, anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate but climbs in by some other way is a thief and a robber. The one who enters the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. 
When he has brought them out into his, uh, on his own, he goes ahead of them and the sheep follow him because they know his voice, but they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from, from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Jesus used his figure of speech, but the Pharisees did not understand what he's telling them. So he, he paints this picture of, that, of, of them being sheep, the people being sheep. And he says, the good shepherd comes in and opens the gate. And it's a beautiful image of what it looks like to receive Christ. A lot of times when we think about Jesus in the gospel, we think, man, what a mean, terrible God that would damn someone to hell, that would cast them out to hell. But he gives this picture of these sheep that are in captivity in this pen. They're, they're in prison, they're blocked in, and there's a gate that is closing them into this pen. And he says, I'm the good shepherd and the gatekeeper that I come and open the gate and I call the sheep out by name, by name, by name, I call them out. And I call them out into pastures and into life and I go ahead of them, that they're in captivity and all the sheep has to do is walk through the gate because in the gate is death, in the, day, in the gate is captivity, inside that gate is, is imprisonment from sin. And I have opened the gate, the thing a sheep cannot do, it's on its own. I've opened the gate and I call them out and all the sheep has to do is walk through the gate. That Jesus came, he opened the gate and called them out. And so it says in scripture that they didn't understand what he was telling them. So verse seven says, therefore Jesus said again, very truly I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate and whoever enters in me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. <clears throat> the thief comes only to steal, kill and destroy, but I've come that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees a wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. And Jesus famously says, I've come, the enemy has come to, to steal, to kill and destroy. I've come so that you may have life and have it abundantly, this idea of abundant life in Christ. And this idea of abundant life does not mean the moment we die. And I've said this before, that when we receive Christ, when we walk through the, 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 the gate, out of the pen and into life, that abundant life begins. And so when you receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior, that's when your abundant and eternal life begins, not the moment of death. And I think that we, we mistake that sometimes. We think, man, I've received Christ. My ticket to heaven is punched. I'm good to go. And man, when I keel over, then my eternal life will begin. But that's not what scripture says. The abundant life that Christ offers is yours now. And that's what we're gonna be talking about this morning. So, so further along, these Pharisees are ticked off. And so they literally are taking up stones to stone Jesus. And verse 24 says, the Jews who were there gathered around him saying, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you're the Messiah, tell us plainly. Jesus answered, I, I did tell you, but you do not believe. The works I do in my father's name testify about me, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. 
No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. And I and the Father are one, verse 30. Let me look a little bit further for you guys. Verse 31, again, the Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him. And this is this confrontation, Jesus promising life. And so as we talk about this and offering abundant life to anyone who walks through the gate, the idea is that when we receive Christ, we receive abundant life. And when we receive abundant life, it changes how we live. So when we receive Jesus and we receive our abundant life, we live differently because of the abundant life offered in Christ. So that's what we're gonna talk about. And I want us to jump through the scripture and look at like what it means to live abundantly because I think we hear that and that can seem like intimidating, unsure of what that looks like. And I think scripture shows us what it looks like to live abundantly um, in the name of Jesus. So the first thing I wanna share and I want us to look at in scripture is that abundant life changes your perspective. Abundant life changes your perspective. Remember, this whole situation starts around this blind man and the disciples asking this question. And they say in verse two in chapter nine, his disciples ask him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And so the disciples see this man and they see the misfortune of his life, his struggles, and they want to know why. They want to understand why. And I think that like we as human beings, we do that. Like we look at the world we see brokenness, we see heartache, we see struggle, we see things that are not fair, that are unjust, that are not right, that doesn't settle in our hearts. And we ask the question, why? Why is it this way? Why is the world broken? Why, is, why are these bad things happening? Why is there pain, suffering? Why is there brokenness all around us? We look at our lives. We look at the lives of our, our loved ones. We look at those who are innocent. We look at those who are marginalized. And we see the unfairness of the broken world we live in. I think every one of us, whether you believe in Jesus or you don't, whether you're interested in God or you're not, you can look at the world and, and we can all determine this is broken, right? There, there's something wrong. And so we identify that. We, they, the disciples see this and they want to know why. Like, why is this the way this is? Why is the man this way? And Jesus said in verse 39, for judgment, I have come into this world so that the blind will see and those who, will, those who see will become blind. And some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, what are we blind to? And here's the truth about the abundant life changing our perspective. The truth is this, seeing, seeing and perceiving are two very different things. To see and to perceive are two very different things. And so how you perceive something changes what you see. So when we see someone and, and, and in the context of abundant life in the gospel, that begins to change. It, our perspective changes based off knowing Jesus and having abundant life. Have you ever, do you remember as a kid, when I was a kid, we had those, those like digital posters that were, uh, they're like magic eye where they're, you stare at them, they're neon, you stare at them and you kind of back up and the image pops out. You know what I'm talking about? Sure, there's a fancy name for that other than the way I described it. But you know, like you, you see on the surface level, you see this image that's printed and it's kind of neon, there's pattern and it looks like nothing, but you stare at it and you back up. Y'all know what I'm talking about? And the image pops out, right? You, it's, it's part of looking deeper into this photo. It's allowing your eyes to see beneath what is just on the surface. And Jesus says, you don't understand. You're, you're, you're looking at the surface alone and you've got to look deeper. And he says, the blind will see and those who see will become blind. 
And you see perspective, when we consider perspective, perspective cuts both ways. So it's not just about looking at the world and perceiving and understanding and like why it's broken, but it does the same for our lives. Like how you perceive something changes what you see. And not only does our life in Christ change how we see brokenness, but our life in Christ also changes how we see ourselves and our own righteousness. And the Pharisees said, they responded to him and it's super snarky. They're not looking for understanding. They say, what? So are we blind too? And it's a snide comment. It's not a genuine question of they're offended. They're almost mocking the ridiculousness of what Jesus said. What Jesus said is ridiculous, that the blind are gonna see and the sea will, will be blind. And Jesus in verse 41 said, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim that you can see, your guilt remains. Here are these Pharisees, these, these religious leaders. They're the religious elite. They're the religious zealots. They're the religious experts. And they don't see the son of God standing right in front of them that it is the Messiah. They know what the Torah says. They know the Psalms of David. They know what the prophets have written. And standing before them is the son of God and they don't see it. They don't see it for what it is. And Jesus has just performed this miracle. He's just given this man sight that's been blind from birth and they're wrapped up on the Sabbath. They're upset because he's done this miracle on the Sabbath. They don't see like, oh, wait a minute. He's performed this miracle and given sight to the blind. And so let's, as we consider this, I think, you know, it's their own pride. It's their self-righteousness. It's their ego. Their sins have blinded them to what's right in front of them. So when Jesus says, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim that you can see, your guilt remains. Their very own pride, ego, selfishness, greed, their sin is blinding them to what is right in front of them. So we think about our own lives and we think about abundant life that's offered in Jesus and changing our perception. It not only changes how we see the brokenness in this world, but it changes how we see ourselves. It changes, we see ourselves differently and what we do and why we matter. Not because of some accolade, because of what we've earned or because of our reputation or because of our 401k or whatever it may be that you find importance and value of. It's about the Lord and how the Lord sees you. You know, we, we sang, Lindsay led us through the song, Goodness of God. I was just, man, as we're singing that song, like we worship when we sing these songs and we don't feel them all the time, right? There, there's times that we come in here and we don't feel the goodness of God. Our life is hard. There's circumstances that are going bad. We're struggling. We're in a bad spot. And we say about the goodness of God. And it's about changing our perspective and saying, Lord, I know this is true. I don't feel it. I don't experience it in this moment, but I know this to be true. It's the same as the, the guy who wrote, who wrote, it is well with my soul. He wrote this on the eve of his, his child drowning. It is well with my soul. And sometimes like for our perception to change, we've got to speak those words to ourselves. And they're saying, God, help me to see. Help me to perceive what's going on around me and the circumstances of life. Not only does abundant life change your perspective, but abundant life also changes your values, your values. And I, and I don't mean values as like principles or standards, right? And, and certainly it does change that as well, your values. But I mean, how you value things, like your value system 
and worth and value in the world. In verse 10 and, and, and chapter 10, it says, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. When he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. So not only does Jesus show himself as a good shepherd, but he points out that the world or the enemy, he points them out as either a thief or a hired hand. And so at, at its best, the enemy is a hired hand. At its worst, it's a thief. And so let's just, like, let's just let this image and this picture play out a bit. So first of all, you've got to picture yourself as a sheep, right? You've got to picture yourself as a sheep. And in scripture, this is a common trope. Do you know what a trope was? It was your wordle, word of the week. So I got in an argument with my mom whether I knew what a trope was. So I just used it to prove my mom wrong. She's probably watching online. Anyways, it's this common trope in scripture of us seeing ourselves as sheep. And as a sheep, we have a purpose and a value. Like in the world, a sheep has purpose and a value. And a sheep's purpose is to have wool and um, to be eaten or for meat or to sell or to have a livestock. All the things that a sheep the purpose and value of a sheep is. I'm not a sheep herder, but I'm sure there's more. But wool and meat and whatever else a sheep has value. And so that's how the, the world sees us. And you've got to see yourself like, okay, I'm a sheep. I have value. And so the enemy at best is a hired hand and at worst is a thief. And so let's think about a hired hand for a minute, which is literally, scripture says, is a hireling or someone who is hired to do a job. So if the, the enemy is a hired hand and sees you as a sheep. They're just a hireling hired to do a job. And you have a value. Like the enemy sees value in you, what it can take for your life. And the world assigns, literally assigns you a value. And at some point, the value switches where it no longer becomes worth it. Where your life and what it's costing someone and what's costing the world has been surpassed. So I don't know if you've ever been a hireling. When I was in, in college, I worked at a, a liquor store. And then like right out of college, I worked at a liquor store called Great My Market. My uncle owned this liquor store and I was a hireling. I was just the, the, the beer delivery boy. I did cashier and all this sort of stuff. And so I was a hireling to do this job. And during Christmas one year, the store was packed and people were everywhere and we were selling you know, wine and, and, and stuff and, and, and food and all that sort of stuff. And we were super busy. And so my uncle comes up to me and says, hey, the toilet is clogged in the bathroom. You've got to go unclog the toilet. And so I go in there. I'm like, okay, I'm, you know, I'm running deliveries. I go in there and I work hard on this toilet that's clogged and it doesn't become unclogged. And that, it's, the store's super busy. And so I go to my uncle. I said, Chuck, I said, I can't get it unclogged. So my uncle walks in the restroom, opens the toilet, sticks his hand into the toilet and unclogs it immediately. You see, I'm not the owner. I'm a hireling. I'm not doing that, right? My, the value and the cost of what I'm getting paid for doing my job has been reached. I'll check out, I'll deliver, I'll do those things. I'm not doing that because I am a hireling and the value has come. I know it's a stupid example and a disgusting example, but the point is there, is if the world sees you like a hireling, at some point, what you cost changes. So at best, the enemy is a hired hand. At worst, the enemy is a thief. And the, the word literally in scripture here is kleptus, which is where we get the word kleptomaniac. And it's someone who takes what is not there for their own gain. The enemy comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. 
So a thief that breaks in and takes something, that takes a life, they're not concerned with the thing. They're only concerned with themselves. So the enemy sees your life. It's to steal and to take and to use what is there. So we think about value. I just want to give you this picture, help you understand that's though you have a value in the world, right? Like you do taxes. April 15th, Shay, remind me, we need to do taxes. Martha, keep me accountable. You have a value. But the scripture says that Jesus is like the good shepherd and the value is the life of the shepherd. Let me say this clearly. Let me say this more directly. You belong to God. Period. Whether you know Jesus, whether you believe it, whether you don't, whether you like it or not, you belong to the Lord. You were created in your mother's womb exactly how he wanted you to be, created in his own image and likeness. You are beautifully and wonderfully made and you belong to the Lord. And as a sheep, excuse me, as, as the Lord and the good shepherd sees you, scripture says that the good shepherd leaves the 99 and goes after the one lost sheep. In Luke chapter 15, it says, suppose one of you has 100 sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 of the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? Not until the job has become too hard. Not until he said, well, I've searched enough. Not just to take the sheep and to use the sheep, but he searches until he finds it. And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and he goes home. You belong to the Lord. Then he calls his friends, his neighbors together and says, rejoice with me for I found my lost sheep. If you don't know Christ and you hear one thing today, I want you to know this, is that Jesus is after you and he will not stop pursuing your heart. He will not stop calling your name. There's, he's got the gate open and he is after you. He's after your heart. And here's the truth. I think that we think often the gospel is not about us trying to reach God, but the gospel is about God chasing after you. That's the gospel. It's not about what we can do or how we can work so that we can find the Lord. And so the Lord is searching after you and your value according to the Lord is everything. That you are invaluable, that your life and your value and your worth is the blood of Jesus on the cross. That the enemy that comes to steal, kill and destroy, that's like a hireling, the good shepherd sees you as worth everything, everything to him. Scripture says, I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. So when we receive abundant life, it changes our value system dramatically. It's not like a slight alteration in how we value the world and people and things around us. It dramatically changes our value. Verse eight says, what is more? I can, here's, here's some scripture that gives you a little bit of this. Philippians chapter three, verse eight says this. It says, what is more? I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ as my Lord. For the sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. So you think about worth and value. Scripture says that everything that we've gained, everything you've built, your reputation, your life, the stuff you have, the things you've done is garbage. I count it all as loss for the sake of finding and knowing Jesus Christ. In Matthew 13, Jesus says this, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy, he went and sold all that he had and bought that field. Your value system changes dramatically. 
and how you value things. I think that parenthood, like being a parent is a great test of your value system and how you value things. Like as being a parent and raising kids and what we desire for our kids and how we live as a parent, your value system is challenged. That's, this is the point where every parent in the room says amen to that because your value system has changed and you do ridiculous things for your kids uh, that you might not normally do. So for Shay and I, we have three kids and our youngest, uh, Barrett, is, he's really, he's struggled in school. And so even going into kindergarten, we knew he'd have a hard time. And so this past year, we, we had some testing done and getting him some help. And so he's qualified for the special education program at, at Firm Bluff. And, and he, he's being pulled and all these great things. And we're really excited and grateful for that. We tell, we tell people that. People say, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. That must be terrible. And yeah, like I get the sin of it, but we're like, yeah, we're so glad that he's getting the help that he needs. And Barrett came home because he, he's aware of kind of his struggles in reading. So he came home uh, around Christmas and he just told me, he said, I said something about, buddy, you're, you're, you're so smart. Or he did something. I said, you're so smart. And he said, no, I'm not. And this is my seven-year-old. No, I'm not. I'm like, buddy, you're smart. Yes, you are. He goes, well, I can't read. I can't do this. And he said it very matter of fact. And I, you know, I said, well, you know, I said, why do you say that? He's like, well, I'm smart as, smart as such and such or so-and-so or whatever. And I said, buddy, I said, okay. I said, who's the fastest in your class? He goes, me. I said, who's the strongest? I said, me. I said, who's the funniest? He's, he said, me. I said, who's the smartest? He goes, not me. And I was like, big deal. I was like, Barrett, I know so many people that are brilliant and smart that are awful human beings. Being so, when did smart become better? Right, when do we value that? Oh, if you're smart, you're better. And yes, I told him, I said, it's gonna, like, things being hard are gonna have challenges for you, but you're gonna learn to persevere and God is shaping you in this person. So I just think, like, as parents, like, we get to see that. And there's eager, there's, there's one of this, like, being fear of, like, what this is gonna be. But man, if you've ever met Barrett, like, that old boy, he could be a politician or a salesman tomorrow, right? He's got a huge personality, so when we see our kids and we see our life, we can evaluate our, our, our value system and how that changes. Because I don't want to graze successful kids that make a bunch of money, that, that, that are independent and on their own. That is great. And I would love that. I want to raise kids that love Jesus. I had a parent call me today, uh, this week, about my daughter, Sloan. I'll pick on her. Uh, and And her son has met Sloan through school and she just told me, she goes, I'm so grateful for her. She said, I want you to know, I prayed that her, she would make friends that are believers and I'm so grateful for this. And I was just so encouraged by that. Like, I'm like, yes, like that's it. Like, that's what I want. I wanna raise people that love and know Jesus and live abundantly, not kids that don't have challenges and won't have a hard time and won't know how to persevere. And so it changes our values. The last thing abundant life changes I think we see in the scriptures, abundant life changes your goals. And it changes your goals. This healing with the blind man has reached this boiling point. The Pharisees ask, they say, tell us plainly, are you the Messiah? It's reached this boiling point. They're mad. They've had this confrontation. So he says, tell us, are you the Messiah? In verse 25, Jesus says, I did, I did tell you, but you do not believe. The works I do in my father's name testify about me, but what you do, but what you do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice and I know them and they follow me. 
And here's the problem for these guys is what Jesus is doing and what he's saying can't be reconciled. They can't reconcile the miracles that they're seeing and the things that he's claiming to be. They can't reconcile that for themselves. They can't deny, they, they, they can't deny the works and the miracles of Jesus, but they also can't accept what he's saying. And for Christians, I think our struggle is actually the opposite. I think we say what we say can't always be reconciled with how we live. Like we claim to believe and to walk this abundant life and to follow Jesus, but then we look at our lives and the things we do and they don't line up. So they're not reconciled. With Jesus, it was the opposite. They could see the works that he was doing, these miracles he was performing. They couldn't reconcile what he was saying and they weren't at peace with that. For us, a lot of times it's the opposite. We claim these things about our lives, but we look at our life and it can't be reconciled. They don't add up. So that's why the idea of it changing our goals. And we claim that we have abundant life in Christ, but we live with anything but that. And so let's be honest for a minute. And I think this is a legitimate struggle and I wanna give ourselves grace for that. Is that here's where the gospel can be problematic for like Americans, Christians in the 21st century. Is, is that it changes our goals. When we receive Christ, it changes the goals in our lives. And the truth is, is that we live in a very goal-oriented world, right? You're taught from a young age to have goals, to aspire, to work towards them. And the goals aren't bad in and of themselves. But we live in a world and a time and a place and in a society and culture where we don't need God. We have no need for God in our life as it looks today. Like tangibly, most of us in this room, most of us online walking through church at home, you don't need God today, right? Like you have comfort and you have a home and you have a life and you have a paycheck. Like you could go today with no need for Christ tangibly. And that's hard. And I wanna give grace in that sense of like to move through life and to have success. And I think that that place to be is one of the most dangerous places to be to be in a place where we don't need the Lord, where there's not desperation for Christ and dependence on God in our lives. If you've ever been to the mission field, you've experienced something different. Like I've been to third world countries and I've seen what desperation for Christ looks like. I've seen people that are desperate for Jesus to hear their prayers and to answer their prayers. We were in Nicaragua one time when we were delivering food to these families and we went to this home and this woman had just given birth to these two premature babies. And man, when you are poor and you live in Nicaragua and, and you live on a dirt floor and a tin roof above your head, when you give birth to a premature baby, they hand the baby to you and they send you on your way. And she didn't know if they were gonna live. They didn't look good. They were on these mosquito nets and she wanted us to hold her babies and pray for them. Man, you want to be like you want all your desperation to be challenged in that moment. I don't know what to pray. Like what we would do is we would go to the doctor and our like Barrett was in the NICU. We've experienced all that, and so we got to see people that are desperate for Jesus to answer their prayers. And so we went back and uh, a year later, and we went to that same neighborhood, and we went by that home, and we saw this family, and she had both these little boys, they were alive and they were well.
and they were there and God answered her prayers. And I was so blown away by that. There's a family that go, that we used to lead this mission trip every spring break and it was a family trip and it was great. And there was a family, the Ball family that would go with us and, and Jeff is like brilliant and their, their family's wealthy and they vacation in really tropical, beautiful places. But every year they would go on this trip to Nicaragua. And he said, this is the best vacation my family's ever been on. And I mean, it's not vacation, right? We're digging ditches and, and handing out food and, and doing these, these, these short-term missionary work. He's like, I wouldn't change this for the world. He said, we've never been on a better vacation. And so I think when we consider our goals, like what, how we reorient our life and reprioritize things for us. You know, when Shay and I went into ministry, a lot of it, it felt reckless. Like it felt reckless, our decision and our prayer to go into ministry. We had no experience. We weren't educated. I've never been to seminary. We, we weren't trained, but we felt God calling us into ministry. And we were just a couple of teachers that loved our job. We loved being teachers and I was a coach. We love what we did that God was calling us into ministry. Funny enough, last night I had a dream that I went back to coaching and went back into the world of coaching. And I remember thinking like, how do I do this and do my job? How can I pastor and be a coach at the same time? And the funny thing is, is that what I remembered about my dream is the smell of the locker room. I know that's so random, but that's what I remember. But like for us, there was some sort of recklessness into going into ministry. And I'm not saying everyone's called into ministry. I could promise you you're called to something. And that could be on your street. It could be where you work. It could be in your family. And it could be somewhere else. Like the Lord could call you to do something outside of this goal and this life that you've set up for yourself. And when we went into ministry, my mom, bless her heart, she said, are you sure about this? You know, she's just being a good mom. Are you sure this is a good idea? Are you sure you're gonna be okay? Are you sure you can do this? And my mom's been wonderful. She's been the the most incredibly supportive person for us in ministry. But you think about it, and like you think about our goals changing and our value system changing and our perspective on the world and the importance of our lives and why we're here matters changing. Matthew 6, Jesus tells us, look at the birds in the air, and God provides for them. Look at the grass in the field. It's here today, gone tomorrow. Don't worry about what you eat or drink. That's for the pagans. Pagans chase after these things. And Jesus says, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you. Here's the truth. At some point, scripture is just words on a page if we aren't willing to apply it to our life and to live by it. If we just read scripture and we don't do anything, it is just words on a page. We call this the living word of God. We call it the, the, the holy living Bible. But this doesn't become alive until we, it's lived out in us. That is how scripture is lived. And so I just want us to consider like the gospel and what you're being invited into. So as we close, I just wanna say that abundant life is offered through Christ and Christ alone. We can look at this man who's blind and see exactly what this looks like. He didn't walk down some aisle at Bethel Collective Church for a pastor to say, repeat after me the sinner's prayer so that he, you know, is baptized. He didn't do all these things that we often think that it takes. Here's the thing that he did. He answered the question for himself. And the bottom line is for you and Jesus, it comes down to you and you alone, a decision for you to walk through the gate Verse 35, Jesus heard that they had thrown him out. When he found him, he said, 
do you believe in the Son of God? Jesus asked him the question, do you believe that I'm the, do you believe in the Messiah, the Christ, the Savior, one that's promised from God, a God that loves you and is after you and has made a way for you to have relationship with him? And the man responds in verse 36, who is he, sir? Tell me so that I may believe in him. He says, tell me the truth. Who is the Messiah? Verse 37, Jesus says, you have seen him. And in fact, he is the one speaking with you. Jesus tells him the truth. He says, I am the Messiah, the Christ, the one that is promised. In verse 38, the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. An answer that is only this man can give for account of himself. And that's every one of us. And that you've got to answer this, the question for yourself to receive Christ, to walk through the gate. You are the only one that can answer that question. And Jesus will call you by name and say, do you believe? Let's stand. I'm going to close this in prayer. I want to thank y'all for being here this morning. I want to remind y'all about Easter. I want to remind you about praying during Ramadan. Uh, I want to remind y'all come in for next Sunday as we celebrate Palm Sunday. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much, God, that you gave us life abundantly. Thank you for joining us this morning for our service. We are publishing content throughout the week for Church at Home through our social media and website. For more information, visit www.vessel.church.